Knowing that so many of you are soon to discover the magic of Shelley Reed's Go as a River brings a smile to this bookseller. Introducing a reader to a new voice, one that's so unwavering and sure of itself, is why we do what we do. On this edition of The Literary Life, it's my hope that listening to Shelley talk about her life in Western Colorado and its influence on her engaging story of Victoria and how she perseveres over three decades, confronting love and disappointment and the harsh and beautiful reality of her life will compel you to take a chance on this debut. You won't be sorry. As Bonnie Garmis, the author of Lessons in Chemistry, writes, Go as a River is completely unforgettable. My interview with Shelley was conducted live right before her event at Books and Books in Carl Gables, Florida. Shelley, welcome to The Literary Life. Thank you so much, Mitch. We had quite a day today, didn't we? <laughs> Got a beautiful tour of Miami. I know. Shelley, has, you've never been to Miami. No, I've never. And we did just about everything you can do <laughs> in about five hours of Miami, <laughs> including Miami Beach. Miami Beach. And gorgeous. Shelley's first taste of stone crabs. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I went for it. I just went for it <laughs> with a little coaching from you. So that was good. Yeah, it was a very local experience today. I loved it. Yeah. Thank well, you. <laughs> what I thought what would be really cool is because your book is so much about place. It is. That you need to discover a little bit of my place. Yes. So I got to spend the day with you showing you a little bit about what this place is all about. And it couldn't be farther in <laughs> spirit and in actuality. In temperature. And <laughs> temperature than Crested Butte, yes. which is where you're from. Right, right. Well, and I loved being able to see into your connection, your lifelong connection to Miami and all the changes that you've seen and the stories that you told. Because, yeah, like you said, place is so important to me. Certainly it informs my writing on a variety of levels, but I am a fifth-generation Coloradoan, and I have just always carried that inside of me in a sometimes kind of unarticulated way. It's just has informed sort of everything I am and everything that I come from and the way in which I think of place and homeland. I come from very tough people who did everything that they needed to do through a variety of challenges in order to make a, a home in a relatively wild and difficult place like Colorado in the, you know, in the mid-19th century all the way through until now. And so, yeah, I, I really value homeland, and I love meeting someone who also has a deep sense of homeland as well. I feel that it's becoming more and more rare. Very much so. And mine doesn't go back as far as yours. Yeah. And I'm really interested in some of those early ancestors of yours yeah. that you're aware of and that yeah. you still know of. Yeah. Talk a little bit about them. Well, my grandfather was a wonderful storyteller. My grandfather, Furman. Furman Burns. I have some wonderful names in my family also. But my grandpa Furman just loved to tell stories. And so I learned so much about my ancestry through him carrying on those stories. And in fact, when he was toward the end of his life and his memory that was just so sharp started to fade, we got him a typewriter and had him type out all of his stories. And so it's a super treasured document for my family, one that I referred to quite a bit during the writing of my novel, Go as a River. 
because it gave me a lot of the really specific details of what ranch and farm life was like for him. He was born in 1913. And so before him, my family settled in Colorado. Uh, My great-great-grandparents settled in Colorado, first on the northeastern plains of Colorado, and then also uh, another group of family on the southeastern plains of Colorado. My family, the Boldens, uh, they were called. Um, There's actually a gulch named Bolden Gulch out there somewhere in northeastern Colorado of where they they settled, but they, they literally dug into a hillside and created a sod house. It was that's how inhospitable in some ways the environment was. And then legend has it or the story goes that then my great great grandfather died out there um chopping wood or working the cattle or some sort of manual labor. There's just a little family out there on the plains. And so my grandmother took over and and uh, the homestead and with the children and the cows and the homestead and just kept it all going. And so I have had, I have some really, I've answered just with a lot of grit, but I look to the women in the family, particularly some really powerful, strong women. And then another group down in the southeastern plains of Colorado were ranchers and farmers and just people who every day did what needed to be done, no matter how challenging it was. I take great strength from that. I really do. How did they find themselves How did they get themselves to Colorado? How did that happen? Yeah, that part I'm a little less clear on in terms of the exact stories. I'm I'm fairly clear on where they came from. Uh, North Carolina was some, Oklahoma. Uh, My grandfather, an interesting story that just gives you a little insight into that era. My grandfather's Furman's father, he had a family and five children, and he uh, worked on the Erie Canal. And his wife and all five children died of, my mom thinks it's cholera, some sort of an illness that couldn't be cured back then. He came west to Colorado to completely start over from the ground with a new family and everything. And that's almost unimaginable, that pain and that loss to us today. But again, I think just of the era, they kept on, they kept on going. And, and it seems clear to me, even it's obvious in your book, but it's also obvious when one gets to know you a little bit that the strain that also runs through you is this incredible connection to the land yeah, and to the land of color. Yes. Can you talk about that a little bit? Definitely. And so I have, like I said, I've just always felt this connection to place deep down in my bones. My grandparents' generation were the ones who, you know, culturally uh, were sort of encouraged to urbanize, sort of the success, the definition of success for them was to get off of the farm, get out of the ranch, get to a city. So my grandparents eventually settled in Colorado Springs, where my both my parents grew up as well, and where I was had my childhood. And then for me, it was about getting back to the land in a more intense way, getting out of the urban setting. And so of these five generations of Coloradoans, we have all sorts of different scenarios but in a way, it was sort of a, a luxury for me to be able to choose returning to the land. And so I've uh, created my entire adult life in the um, high in the mountains on the western slope of Colorado. I was lucky enough to have family there uh, before I was born and when I was a baby. So it's always just been part of my life. But the wild landscapes of the western slope of Colorado, they truly just mean everything to me. They're just in my 
bones, they're in my my desires, they're in my imagination. That's what I love to write about. I love to spend time in wild landscapes. I really have come to believe that it's the only place that life, that existence actually really makes sense to me. And uh, so the higher, the better, the wilder and the higher, the better. Well, it's interesting <laughs> because when we were, uh, <laughs> when we went to see the ocean, because mm-hmm. you don't see oceans very much. I do not see in oceans. Colorado. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the look in your eyes was quite, quite significant. The colors, well, also just, it's in the middle of the winter in Colorado right now. We literally got three feet of snow this week. I, I've lost track of how many, um, how many feet of snow we've gotten. I live in this very monochromatic landscape, and here I am in, in Miami, flowers and greenery, but the color of the water. I was wowed. I was right. really Well, But wowed. what's so interesting is that I've taken a lot of people around in Miami, and, you know, it's not everybody who remarks particularly about the natural beauty. Oh, that's A lot of people are talking really? about, oh, look at that house. Oh, that's like, look, You know, look at that mansion over there. Oh, why did they build that high rise? <laughs> or they start talking about other things, but you completely zoned in oh, that's... on the nature of it all. And reading your book oh. and speaking with you before, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. And in fact, we spent a good amount of time talking about the power of nature. And you reflected on what it might be like to be through a hurricane. Yeah. And you likened it very much to the to your experience skiing in the backcountry yeah. where there are avalanches yeah. and the force of that. So talk about a little bit about, you know, what life is like in Crested Butte. How, how many people live there? What do you do on a daily basis? Sure. You know, for, for those of us who live a more city life. Yeah. Sure. It's well, my life, every day of my life, my house sits at 9,000 feet elevation and in a uh, small mountain community uh, that is an end of the road uh, mountain community, a 35 minute drive from the nearest other town and and just a one way in, one way out. So you really want to need to want to go there. And there is a ski area there. And uh, it's, it's a very tight-knit community, a lot of very adventurous people, people who, like me, define their lives by the seasons and define their lives by immersion in wild landscapes. And so we have a real sort of shared love, a commonality. As an example, when it's just dumping snow, the whole town is just elated. Nobody's complaining. I mean, it's just elated. And when it doesn't really snow, there's a, there's a sadness. It's sort of a shared understanding of... Uh, of, I don't know, the joy that, that wild landscapes bring to all of us. So it's a really lovely community in that way where we really watch out for each other as well. I mentioned living by the seasons. When you live at that elevation, a lot of people, their jobs are different by the season. Certainly just day-to-day life is very, very different based on the season. And I really love that sort of ancient rhythm of living by the season. It's an it's a ancient rhythm that all, you know, that, that wild landscapes and animals and it just, it defines existence on a very primal and fundamental level. And it's something that I would venture to say many, many people don't pay as close of attention to as we do in our valley, that for a lot of people, their daily lives look fairly the same regardless of the season. But for us, seasons define everything. So a lot of snow, a lot in the winter, a lot of spectacular 
wildflowers in the summer, golden, golden aspens in the, in the autumn, and just a very different feel to life based on what's going on, um, going on outside. If it's a full moon, you know you're going to go for a ski and run into other people that you know. We, you just tune into those natural rhythms that maybe some well, other and the people thoughtful don't. way of thoughtful way you explain all of this just now is so evident in Go as a River. Okay. I mean, your voice is so clearly present, and this feeling is so present in Go as a River. Yeah. And I think this would be a good time for you to tell us a little bit. You know, give us your little bit of a of a synopsis, because I can tell you and go into it, but I've heard you talk about it, and you talk about it so well, and you talk about it so succinctly. How would you describe Go as a River? Okay, well, Go as a River River is a work of fiction. It's a novel, all set, majority of it is set within the Gunnison Valley, which, as I said, is my homeland, and it's a place that I know very well and love to the depths of my heart. And so the setting itself is almost a, a character in the book. But it's the story of a young woman named Victoria Nash, a character who I really have come to love over the years. Uh, she's a young woman growing up a- along the banks of the wild Gunnison River. The novel opens in 1948, and it carries us through Victoria's story until 1971. And in that time, we learn that Victoria is from a ranching community called Iola, which was a real town in the Gunnison Valley uh, before it was evacuated and flooded to create, and the river dammed to create Blue Mesa Reservoir, which is the largest reservoir in Colorado. And so the novel follows uh, Victoria through her journey of a variety of challenges and difficult decisions, and it focuses on themes of place and displacement and home and family and where we turn when those things are lost. And also the wild landscapes, as you mentioned. At one point in the novel, Victoria leaves Iola and is deeply immersed in a wild landscape. And that gave me the opportunity to dig into the layers of what I believe wild landscapes do for us, you know, tremendously instructive, but also very scary and intimidating. And so there's an extraordinary amount of humility to be gained from wild landscapes as well as lessons about the essential, what's most essential about life. And so all of those things are included in this in this novel as the reader goes along with Victoria as she really has to discover who she is and how strong and resilient she actually is far beyond her understanding at the beginning of the book. The book's been out for a little while, and the responses that I've gotten from readers that I've suggested the book to indicates to me that Victoria as a character uh, has broken through. In other words, there are so many people who are moved by her story. We don't want to give too many spoilers here, but but it is quite a remarkable, uh, she's become quite a remarkable heroine, the things that she's had to go through. But it leads me to the question that this is a debut novel, Mm -hmm. and you teach literature, yeah. and you've been teaching literature and writing for a number of years now. So the question comes to me, and it has, in terms of the choices that you had to make to bring Victoria to life. Yeah. And talk a little bit about some of the influences that we might see 
in Go as a River. Some mm. of the some of the people that you've taught, some of the people that you've read. Sure. You write. You you have a epigram by with Annie Dillard. I do. Talk a little about all of them. Yeah, you know, the writing of this novel was quite a journey. You know, we follow Victoria's journey, but as a parallel journey <laughs> was my own journey, both as a writer and just as a human being, really. I worked on this book for well over 10 years, probably closer to 12 or more, actually. I sort of lost track in a way because, as you said, I was a full-time professor at Western Colorado University for the majority of that time. And I was also a mom raising my two fabulous children. And I really just poured my heart and soul into those two endeavors to just show up fully for my students who I adore and my, my children. And then there's also just life. Life gets in the way, a variety of challenges and losses and an illness and, you know, just life. And so I, I wasn't sure who Victoria was, why she kept poking at me <laughs> to write this book. But as she started to develop as a character in my imagination, she became more and more real to me. And regardless of whether I had time or not, which I didn't, I just felt so compelled that I wanted to tell her story. But I also wanted to tell it as well as I possibly could. In service to Victoria, I never really thought too much at all where this book might go after. I, I finished it. I just knew at some point that I needed to finish it. And it was really because I just love her and I just wanted to tell her story as well as I possibly could. And so, you know, eventually in 2018, I took early retirement from teaching and decided really to clear the space for my own creative self. I set out to be a writer as a young woman, kind of it wasn't so much a detour. I, I lived a, a very enriching, wonderful life as a teacher, but it was wonderful to come back to my love of writing as an older woman. I'm 57 years old. This is my debut novel. Super proud of that. I, I'm super grateful for the process. I wouldn't have had it any other way. The book is absolutely richer for the years. And I do have a variety of influences. Uh, one of the things I taught at my university was environmental history, literature, and philosophy. And so I had the great pleasure of teaching and you know, reading and sharing with my students a variety of environmental writers. You mentioned Annie Dillard. She's a genius. I, I, I read a lot of poetry just in general, but I, I love the poetry of Mary Oliver and Rilke, and, uh, who most people wouldn't think of as a nature poet, but Rilke can just nail something so essential about existence in any, in any such situation. Terry Tempest Williams has meant a lot to me. A lot of female environmental writers. You know, of course, a lot of the male environmental writers and some of the American transcendentalists, I love teaching them and they come to mind, but I think everybody knows their names. I, I really enjoy how a lot of female writers really attend and connect to the natural world in a unique way. And so, you know, I've, I have studied a lot of, a lot of different kinds of writers. I think they just sort of live inside of me and encourage me to believe that stories matter. You and I were talking today about that stories matter. They're so essential, something so essential about being human, that stories matter, that we can trace it all the way back throughout human history and pretty much, I, I would assume, every culture. What Go as a River does, I think, as good as anything I've read, is it encourages a kind of empathy that is so missing in, in, in so much of our culture yeah. today. And 
you know, living here in Miami, reading Go as a River, took me to the Gunnison Valley in 1940s through the 40s. 1970s oh. uh, in a way that I never would have ever experienced it but for reading this novel. And uh, that in itself is an act of an act of community, an act of tying people together in a way that uh, we find it very hard to do these days. I love that. I remember reading somewhere that that was one of your first responses to the book, was the the empathy, the the heart, the, the depth that came forward to you. I was so grateful for that because, you know, we talk about the novel thematically, we talk about the, the inclusion of the natural world, but really love it in, in, its, in the most broadest sense really informs this book. It was a labor of love for me to write it. <laughs> I love my story, Victoria, my, my character, Victoria. I love the natural landscape that it's set in, but also throughout the book, love of place, love of family, love of one another love of home, motherhood plays a role in the book, all the different things to love in our lives really roots this novel. You know, and again, I talk about love very broadly, but, but isn't that, you know, what roots us all, you know, in something that is the most meaningful? And the, the really emotional responses I've had to the novel have been so moving to me because as a writer, for me, that's what I would hope for more than absolutely anything, is that I could touch another human heart uh, with something that I have written. And, and, and you do it. And, and what you also have created with Victoria is a character. I can't remember a character who perseveres more than she does, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. we won't even get into at this point, but when you guys read this book, Go as a River, you'll understand why there is a peach on the cover. Yes. It. Yes. <laughs> and that is that Victoria, while the town is being drowned by the Gunnison River, Victoria has to assure herself and assure the people around her that she's going to be able to move this peach, this peach orchard. Yeah, right? it's an ancestral peach orchard. And so it is really the center point that, that holds Victoria's rather ragged family together but also just the ancestral nature of the commitment to these peaches. Yes, you know, that's, that's one you know, of the You know, I went key. to the University of Colorado, and I did not know <laughs> that there were these kinds of peaches in Western Colorado. The most extraordinary I, peaches I on the western slope of Colorado. You're going to create a run on these, on, these, <laughs> on these peaches. I'm kind of shocked how many people don't know that. But again, that's just my own right. bias, because certainly everyone in Colorado is a big fan of The of other thing that's a little peaches. stunning, when you really think about it, that here is a town that was drowned. Yeah, erased, that, that essentially. That it was erased, erased. but it yeah. exists under the water. It does, yeah, it does. The and, remnants. Uh, we talked about this, that there was a drought recently, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And what happened during that drought with the town? Yeah, super interesting. The Blue Mesa Reservoir, which is the largest reservoir in Colorado, it does not hold water for Gunnison County. <laughs> it holds water for downriver uses. And I'm not sure that most people in Gunnison County, as we're swimming and boating and fishing on this, uh, this lake that everybody loves, is, well, we're aware now. We weren't historically, a lot of people weren't aware in the past, but with the drought in the American West, twice now there's been a water call for the water out of Blue Mesa. 
to be sent downriver, uh, essentially to make sure that Lake Powell doesn't run dry. And so twice now, Iola, for the first time since 1965 and 66, when the dam was completed and the Gunnison River uh, was choked enough to rise to swallow Iola, twice now it's come out. And uh, once I last this last summer, it was a little too muddy, but previously you could see some foundations. You can see the old pad where the flagpole for the school was. And it really just really hits home that there was a, a whole community that loved that place, you know. And then obviously previous to that, there was displacement of the indigenous people of the area. Layers of displacement that is really easy to forget about when it's just a beautiful lake. But when, as it's drained lower, uh, it's kind of undeniable, the history there. I had already been writing this book for many, many years, so it was very surreal and very meaningful to be able to walk in that place. Did Never you speak thought to anybody who was there walking as well? No, I didn't see anybody at the time, but there have been a couple interviews of people who lived in Iola, and that was their home, and then were moved to either Gunnison or Montrose or some of the surrounding areas who, who did go back to look at it. And what I've heard from them is that it was incredibly painful. In your research, is the drowning of a town or the disappearing of a town something that happens yeah. a lot? Yeah, I, I was not so aware of that. You know, the fact that there was a town at the bottom of Blue Mesa Reservoir had always captured my imagination. Since I was a little kid, actually, I sort of found that very haunting. But I didn't realize until I completed this novel and through conversations with people that it's not, it's not an uncommon experience when a reservoir is built. I know there's one in California. There's several in Europe that a town has to be displaced completely against the, the resident's will. And so I'm finding that this story is more common than, than we might know. Yeah. And then as a metaphor, I mean, when you and I were traveling through Miami Beach, and I was telling you about what my Miami Beach was like yes. growing up. Yes. In some ways, my own community has been erased. Has been erased. Yeah. yeah. And so that erasure of one's past, you know, uh, it could happen through a river or it could happen through development. The development, Or yes. it could happen through a lot of money coming in yeah. or money going out. So that idea of what well, we started this conversation with about being rooted somewhere. Yeah. It's how deep those roots go that really matter, right? Yeah, I agree. And, and of course, change is inevitable. And uh, my novel tries to unpack the idea, the notion of quote-unquote progress and the mythologies that we've been sold, <laughs> that cultural norms around that concept of progress. But the reality of progress, quote-unquote, is that can actually be devastating, be very painful, it can, the way that it plays out. And so change on some level is inevitable. The people who are deeply rooted in a place to have to see that place either be erased or changed to a level of not even being recognizable. I feel that that's a special kind of pain. And yeah, it was really interesting talking with you about that today about Miami because there are multiple different ways in which that can manifest. Well, this is a terrific segue into having you read a little bit uh, for, I'd love you to read the prologue, if you could. Sure. It introduces us to Victoria's voice and also places us right away in Iola. Imagine what lingers on the black bottom of a lake. Debris rivered in or tossed from boats grows shaggy and soft. Pouty fish swim their strange lives far from the hook 
in inseparable breath and motion. Imagine patches of lakeweed dancing like lithe, unobserved women. Stand on the edge of a lake, the low waves gulping at your shoes, and imagine how close you are to a world as silent and alien as the moon, out of reach of light and heat and sound. My home is at the bottom of a lake. Our farm lies there, mud-bound, its remnants indistinguishable from boat wreckage. Sleet, sleek trout troll the remains of my bedroom and the parlor where we sat as a family on Sundays. Barns and troughs rot. Tangled barbed wire rusts. The once fertile land marinates in idleness. A history book version of the creation of Blue Mesa Reservoir might portray the project as heroic, part of the grand vision to carry precious water from the Colorado tributaries to the arid southwest. Good intentions may have plugged the once wild Gunnison River and forced it to be a lake, but I know another story. I used to stand knee-deep in this section of the Gunnison when it still rushed fast and frothy through the valley of my birth, the vast and lonely big blue wilderness rising above it. I knew the town of Iola when it woke each morning to fragrant breakfasts and bustling farms and ranches, how the sunrise illuminated the east side of Maine, then inched uptown, across the train tracks and schoolyards, to ignite the tiny church's one red and blue stained-glass window. I timed my life by the hollow whistle of the 922, the 205, the 547. I knew all the shortcuts in townsfolk and the oldest gnarled tree consistently producing the sweetest peaches in my family's orchard. And I knew, perhaps more than most, the sadness of this place. Good intentions relocated the Iola graveyard high on a hill. Each of my family's headstones hopefully matched with their appropriate remains. Where it still sits behind a white iron fence, bent and twisted from the weight of snow, Good intentions otherwise drowned the entirety of Viola, Colorado. Imagine a town silent, forgotten, decomposing at the bottom of a lake that once was a river. If this makes you wonder whether the joys and pain of a place wash away as the floodwaters rise and swallow, I can tell you they do not. The landscapes of our youth create us, and we carry them within us, storied by all they gave and stole in who we become. Oh, thank you so much, Ellen. No, that was so beautiful, and so beautifully read. Thank you. I think you ought to do the the uh, audio book the next time <laughs> around, Shelley. Thank I love you, that. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, Mario Mitch, Island. thank you. Thank you for all your support and enthusiasm for my book. It means the world to me. <laughs> <laughs>